Chapter One of A Chronicle of Carleton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Chronicle of Carleton by William Wood. Chapter One Guy Carleton, seventeen twenty four to seventeen fifty nine. Guy Carleton, first Baron Dorchester, was born at Strayborn county tyrone on the third of september seventeen twenty four the anniversary of cromwell's two great victories and death he came of a very old family of english country gentlemen which had migrated to ireland in the seventeenth century and intermarried with the other anglo-irish families equally devoted to the service of the british crown guy's father was christopher carleton of newry in county down his mother was catherine ball of county donegal his father died comparatively young, and when he was himself fifteen, his mother married the rector of Newry, the Reverend Thomas Skelton, whose influence over the six stepchildren of the household worked wholly for their good. At eighteen, Guy received his first commission as ensign in the twenty-fifth foot, then known as Lord Roth's regiment, and now as the king's own Scottish borderers. At twenty-three, he fought gallantly at the siege of Bergen op Zoom. Four years later, 1751, he was a lieutenant in the Grenadier Guards. He was one of those quiet men whose sterling value is appreciated only by the few till some crisis makes it stand forth before the world at large. Pitt, Wolfe, and George II all recognized his solid virtues. At thirty he was still some way down the list of lieutenants in the Grenadiers, while Wolfe, two years his junior in age, had been four years in command of his battalion, with the rank of lieutenant-colonel. Yet he had long been my friend Carleton to Wolfe. He was soon to become one of Pitt's young men, and he was enough of a coming man to incur the king's displeasure. He had criticized the Hanoverians, and the king never forgave him. The third George gloried in the name of Englishman. But the first two were Hanoverian all through and for an English guardsman to disparage the Hanoverian army was considered next door to laissez majeste. Lady Dorchester burnt all her husband's private papers after his death in 1808, so we have lost some of the most intimate records concerning him. But grave Carleton appears so frequently in the letters of his friend Wolfe that we can see his character as a young man in almost any aspect short of self-revelation. The first reference has nothing to do with affairs of state. In 1747, Wolfe, aged twenty, writing to Miss Lacey, an English girl in Brussels, and signing himself, most sincerely your friend and admirer, says, I was doing the greatest injustice to the dear girls to admit the least doubt of their constancy. Perhaps with respect to ourselves, there may be cause of complaint. Carleton, I am afraid, is a recent example of it. From this we may infer that Carleton was less grave as a young man than Wolfe found himself later on. Six years afterward, Wolfe strongly recommended him for a position which he had himself been asked to fill, that of military tutor to the young Duke of Richmond, who was getting a company in Wolfe's own regiment. Writing home from Paris in 1753, Wolfe tells his mother that the Duke wants some skilful men to travel with him through the low countries and into Lorraine. I have proposed of my friend Carleton, whom Lord Albemarle approves of. Lord Albemarle was the British ambassador to France, so Carleton got the post and travelled under the happiest auspices, 
while learning the frontier on which the belgian french and british allies were to fight the germans in the great world war of nineteen fourteen it was during this military tour of fortified places that carleton acquired the engineering skill which a few years later proved of such service to the british cause in canada in seventeen fifty four george washington at that time a young virginian officer of only twenty-two fired the first shot in what presently became the world-wide seven years war the immediate result was disastrous to the british arms and washington had to give up the command of the ohio by surrendering fort necessity to the french on of all dates the fourth of july in seventeen fifty five came braddock's defeat in seventeen fifty six montcalm arrived in canada and won his first victory at oswego in seventeen fifty seven wolfe distinguished himself by formulating the plan which if properly executed would have prevented the british fiasco at rochefort on the coast of france but carleton remained as undistinguished as before he simply became lieutenant-colonel commanding the seventy-second foot now the seaforth highlanders in seventeen fifty eight his chance appeared to have come at last amherst had asked for his services at louisbourg but the king had neither forgotten nor forgiven the remarks about the hanoverians and so refused point-blank to wolfe's very great grief and disappointment it is a public loss carleton's not going wolfe's confidence in carleton either as a friend or as an officer was stronger than ever writing to george ward afterwards the famous cavalry leader he said accidents may happen in the family that may throw my little affairs into disorder carleton is so good as to say he will give what help is in his power may i ask the same favour of you my oldest friend writing to lord george sackville of whom we shall hear more than enough at the crisis of carleton's career wolfe said amherst will tell you his opinion of carleton by which you will probably be better convinced of our loss again we want grave carleton for every purpose of the war and yet again after the fall of louisbourg if his majesty had thought proper to let carleton come with us as engineer it would have cut the matter much shorter and we might now be ruining the walls of quebec and completing the conquest of new france a little later on wolfe blazes out with indignation over carleton's suppression by a junior can sir john ligonier the commander-in-chief allow his majesty to remain unacquainted with the merit of that officer and can he see such a mark of displeasure without endeavouring to soften or clear the matter up a little a man of honour has the right to expect the protection of his colonel and of the commander of the troops and he can't serve without it if i was in carleton's place i wouldn't stay an hour in the army after being aimed at and distinguished in so remarkable a manner but carleton bided his time in the beginning of seventeen fifty nine wolfe was appointed to command the army destined to besiege quebec he immediately submitted carleton's name for appointment as quartermaster-general pitt and ligonier heartily approved but the king again refused ligonier went back a second time to no purpose pitt then sent him in for the third time saying in a tone meant for the king to overhear tell his majesty that in order to render the general wolfe completely responsible for his conduct he should be made as far as possible inexcusable if he should fail and whatever an officer entrusted with such a service of confidence request ought therefore to be granted the king then consented thus began carleton's long devoted and successful service for canada 
the empire and the crown early in this memorable empire year of seventeen fifty nine he sailed with wolfe and saunders from spithead on the thirtieth of april the fleet rendezvoused at halifax where admiral Jurel, second in command to saunders had spent the winter with a squadron intended to block the st lawrence directly navigation opened in the spring Jurel was a good commonplace officer but very slow he had lost many hands from sickness during a particularly cold season and he was not enterprising enough to start cruising round Cabot Strait before the month of May. Saunders, greatly annoyed by this delay, sent him off with eight men of war on the 5th of May. Wolfe gave him seven hundred soldiers under Carleton. These forces were sufficient to turn back, capture, or destroy the twenty-three French merchantmen, which were then bound for Quebec with supplies and soldiers as reinforcements for Montcalm. But the French ships were a week ahead of Jurel, and when he landed Carleton at Isle aux Coudres on the 28th of May, the last of the enemy's transports had already discharged her cargo at Quebec, sixty miles above. Isle aux Coudres, so named by Jacques Cartier in 1535, was a point of great strategic importance, for it commanded the only channel then used. It was the place Wolfe had chosen for his winter quarters, that is, in case of failure before Quebec, and supposing he was not recalled. None but a particularly good officer would have been appointed as its first commandant. Carleton spent many busy days here preparing an advance base for the coming siege, while the subsequently famous Captain Cook was equally busy a sounding of the channel of the Traverse, which the fleet would have to pass on its way to Quebec. Some of Jurel's ships destroyed the French longshore batteries near this traverse, at the lower end of the island of Orleans, while the rest kept ceaseless watch to seaward, anxiously scanning the offing, day after day, to make out the colours of the first fleet up. No one knew what the French West India fleet would do, and there was a very disconcerting chance that it might run north and slip into the St. Lawrence ahead of Saunders, in the same way as the French reinforcements had slipped in ahead of Jurel. Presently, at the first streak of dawn on the 23rd of June, a strong squadron was seen advancing rapidly under a press of sail. Instantly the officers of the watch called all hands up from below. The boatswain's whistles shrilled across the water as the seamen ran to quarters and cleared the decks for action. Carleton's camp was equally astir. The guards turned out, the bugle sounded, the men fell in and waited. Then the flagship signaled ashore that the strangers had just answered correctly in private code that all was well and that Wolfe and Saunders were aboard. Next to Wolfe himself, Carleton was the busiest man in the army throughout the siege of Quebec. In addition to his arduous and very responsible duties as quartermaster-general, he acted as inspector of engineers and as a special service officer for work of an exceptionally confidential nature. As quartermaster-general, he superintended the supply and transport branches. Considering that the army was operating in a devastated, hostile country, a thousand miles away from its bases at Halifax and Louisbourg, and that the interaction of the different services, naval and military, imperial and colonial, required adjustment to a nicety at every turn. It is wonderful that so much was done so well with means which were far from being adequate. War prices, of course, ruled the British camp, but they compared very favorably with the famine prices in Quebec, 
where most luxuries soon became unobtainable at any price. There were no canteen or camp-follower scandals under Carleton. Then, as now, every soldier had a regulation ration of food and a regulation allowance for his service kit, but extras were always acceptable. The price list of these extras reads strangely to modern ears, but under the circumstances it was not exorbitant, and it was slightly tempered by being reckoned in Halifax currency of four dollars to the pound instead of five. The British Tommy Atkins of that and many a later day thought Canada a wonderful country for making money go a long way when he could buy a pot of beer for two pence and get back thirteen pence Halifax currency as change for his English shilling. Beef and ham ran from nine pence to a shilling a pound. Mutton was a little dearer. Salt butter was eight pence to one and three pence. Cheese was ten pence. Potatoes from five to ten shillings a bushel. A reasonable loaf of good soft bread cost sixpence. Soap was a shilling a pound. Tea was prohibitive for all but the officers. Plain green tea, and very bad, was fifteen shillings. Couchon, twenty shillings. Hyson, thirty. Leaf tobacco was tenpence a pound. Roll, one and tenpence. Snuff, two and threepence. Sugar was a shilling to eighteen pence. Lemons were sixpence apiece. The non-intoxicating bad spruce beer was only twopence a quart, and helped to keep off scurvy. Real beer, like wine and spirits, was more expensive. Bristol beer was eighteen shillings a dozen. Bad malt beer from Halifax, nine pence a quart. Rum and claret were eight shillings a gallon each. Port and Madeira, ten and twelve, respectively. The term bad did not mean noxious, but only inferior. It stood against every low-grade article in the price list. No goods were over-classified while Carleton was quartermaster-general. The engineers were understaffed, undermanned, and overworked. There were no royal engineers as a permanent and comprehensive corps till the time of Wellington. Wolfe complained bitterly and often of the lack of men and materials for scientific siege work, but he relied on Carleton to good purpose in this respect as well as in many others. In his celebrated dispatch to Pitt, he mentions Carleton twice. It was Carleton whom he sent to seize the west end of the island of Orleans so as to command the basin of Quebec, and Carleton whom he sent to take prisoners and gather information at Pointe aux Trembles twenty miles above the city. Whether or not he revealed the whole of his final plan to Carleton is probably more than we shall ever know, since Carleton's papers were destroyed. But we do know that he did not reveal it to anyone else, not even to his three brigadiers, Monckton, Townsend, and Murray. Carleton was wounded in the head during the Battle of the Plains, but soon returned to duty. Wolfe showed his confidence in him to the last. Carleton's was the only name mentioned twice in the will, which Wolfe handed over to Jervis, the future Lord St. Vincent, the night before the battle. I leave to Colonel Otten, Colonel Carleton, Colonel Howe, and Colonel Ward a thousand pounds each. All my books and papers, both here and in England, I leave to Colonel Carleton. Wolfe's mother, who died five years later, showed the same confidence by appointing Carleton her executor. With the fall of Quebec in 1759, Carleton disappears from the Canadian scene till 1766. But so many pregnant events happened in Canada during these seven years, while so few happened in his own career, 
that it is much more important for us to follow her history than his biography. In 1761 he was wounded at the storming of Port Andro during the attack on Belle Isle off the west coast of France. In 1762 he was wounded in Havana in the West Indies. After that he enjoyed four years of quietness at home. Then came the exceedingly difficult task of guiding Canada through twelve years of turbulent politics and most subversive war. End of chapter 1